Welcome to Urban Foundry. All opinions expressed by Andrew Urban, Paige O'Neill, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Collier's International, Inc. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Collier's International may maintain positions in the properties discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Urban Foundry podcast, your go-to source for urban real estate news and conversations. I'm Andrew Urban. And I'm Paige O'Neill, and we will be your co-hosts as we explore the future of downtown real estate. This This is Urban Urban Foundry. Foundry. Welcome to Urban Foundry. We have a special holiday episode here. I'm here with Paige O'Neill, co-host and producer. And we brought in two of the best guns in commercial real estate that Collier's has to offer. We have Billy Powers, Director Industrial Occupier Services and Aaron Snotty, Office Occupier Services. Welcome, gentlemen, to the podcast. Urban Foundry welcomes you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So it's holiday season. It's also business planning time. I thought it'd be fun today if we did a little recap year in review for each of the product types and talk about our outlook for 2023 in each of your respective areas. How's that sound? Let's do it. All right. And at the end of it, we're going to talk about our New Year's resolutions. And try to keep it PG-13. PG-13. That's our, that's our target demo. <laughs> so I have 20 minutes to come up with a New Year's resolution right yeah. now. Yeah. Said, we, track, we track goals. Uh, I don't goals. do a ton of oh. resolutions. I haven't said anything yet for next year. I will in 20 Jeez. minutes. <laughs> All right, Billy, I'm starting with you because I, I want to start with good news first. Talk about industrial. So industrial year in review, pretty unique. And we've been hearing this from a lot of people recently with the economy finally starting to slow down. COVID sent us to the mountaintop essentially in 2021 was a year that no one could have ever expected or seen. 2022 is looking like it could almost hit that amount and hit that level. We'll know more in about a month. So for everybody that's been in the industrial world, we've been busier than ever, but we're also happy as can be. No one's complaining about the workload. And now it's just what's next for us and what's to come. But the rent's continuing to climb. Demand is through the roof. Inventory is not there yet, but we have a lot under construction. So a great year overall. What do you, what do you think slows it down? I don't see it slowing down. I don't think there's any, it, on the leasing side, I don't see it slowing down right now. The capital market side, it came to a halt a few months ago. And I think that is going to remain very slow throughout 2023, but I don't see anything getting in the way of industrial leasing and occupancy going into 2023. I really don't see anything getting in the way. <laughs> I hate to say it. All right. Wow. The Brazilian industrial, evergreen now. All right, Aaron. Office market. Yeah. It feels like 2022. What was 2022? Yeah. It feels like it's the first year we finally understood what the work from home pandemic post office world looked like. It felt like 2020, everybody was surviving. Everybody was asking for rent relief. Uh, some landlords gave it, some didn't. 2021, I think it gave the opportunity for some tenants just to kick the can down the road, you know, ask for short-term extensions as they thought through plans, staffing, et cetera. 2022 feels like, you know, everybody's got their feet on the ground. They understand what occupancy is at least going to look like from a workflow status. You know, it's been quiet the last, call it six months or so. I I think this pending recession probably plays a a big part of that. But with that, you know, there's still were some big leases done, big transactions done. So it's not like our world is total at a standstill. There's just, you know, less overall velocity and activity. I know we were on a co-star call yesterday for National Office Market, you know, Outlook. One thing that stuck out to me, I was flipping through that deck, Aaron, you forwarded from the presentation. And in spring of 2021, 50% of occupiers were unsure 
about what they were going to do. And that number, I think, dropped to 5%. 5%. As far as unsure. Unsure. Which I don't think is a ton of good news moving forward. Yeah. Right? Everybody probably understands that there's downsizing to an extent or they've already done they've already done some of that. But for everybody, that goes back to just kind of really knowing what they're doing the next three, four, five years. Well, and I think I told you after I was at Cornet in October, you know, the, the resounding feedback was no one knows what's next. It's almost like, okay, we were unsure. Now we don't think we need as much space, but everyone's trying to figure out how to get there. But I, I feel like that's every meeting is like, well, we, we know we're not using the space. Okay. We have a 10 year lease left. What do I do? Right. And you're like, uh, you know, it's really starting with the strategy and things like that. But I don't think, I don't think we'll have an answer next year. And I don't think we'll have an answer the year after. I think it'll just be continued to be an evolution. But overall, the trajectory is in right sizing and kind of realigning their programs. Right. And you see that for most industries, right? Across the board. Yeah. Across the board. I mean, just in the last week, I mean, just thinking about our client sectors, right? So so tech, tech, telecom, and media, same question as manufacturing and industrial users of office space. The only ones literally in the entire ecosystem that I think kind of have a strategy on how they're using the office space is, is law firms to a large extent. They're really been the most active users and most, most of the big deals, I think, at least the interesting ones to me are the law firm deals where they still believe in the office and they still think there's tremendous value in that tying somebody to a firm, collaboration across attorneys, across their platform, as well as the apprenticeship model of their business. There's just no other way you can train attorneys and associates without really having senior partner access and, and really mentorship in a lot of ways. You, you do more attorney work and law firm work than yeah. I do. Are you seeing a change in square footage? Is If you were out with a group that needed you know, 30,000 square feet today, what was that same requirement two or three years ago? Is it the same? Is it less? Are they moving back office or, or admin to lesser space or letting them allow more of a hybrid schedule versus attorneys, associates, et cetera? Yeah. You know, so two things have been impacting the law business over the last 15 years. One is uh, square feet per attorney is going down, but that is not necessarily because of the reasons we would think. The reason is, is they don't need law libraries anymore. There was a lot of times we would walk into space and you'd see those rolling files that were huge, five, 600,000 square feet rooms. Just, just law books. Pure storage. Just pure storage, law books, cases, memos, things like that. On top of that, all the paper file storage that old school lawyers used to keep. They used to keep their case records, things like that, and document in paper correspondence. That's all become digitized, right? LexisNexis has basically made the law library obsolete. The other thing is litigation and depositions are becoming more remote. So, you know, in some practices that are really focused on depot work, whether it's civil or criminal, you know, they're they're not needing as much space for that because they're doing a lot of that via Zoom and recording it and, uh, and other things, right? Now, how sticky is that? You know, we'll see. I think there's benefits if you're a lawyer having a deposition in person because you can pick up on cues you can't pick up on a Zoom call, right? Just body language and good litigators will know how to read that and exploit that. Right. And that's part of the, the, the legal game. But we've seen them decrease per, per attorney. But the other thing that we've seen, at least in the last two years, is that they've two things have occurred at law firms. Right. 2020 was an amazing year for most big law because guess what? They didn't have travel and entertainment. So a lot of these partners saw major distribution shifts because they didn't spend X million dollars on t and And now they're still, they're doing more t and than before, but billings with the rest of the economy have been really strong. And so a lot of them, a lot of the proactive, what I think smart managing partners are doing are saying, we want people in our office. These are big men and women. I'm not going to tell them they have to be in the office, but we're going to make this place awesome. 
And the other factor is what the modern law firm looks like change. Most law firm deals are 15 years. So they did their primary fit out 15 years ago. The world's different, right? I mean, what what attracted lawyers and partners 15 years ago is very different than it is today, right? I mean, you know, the wood panels and kind of looking like a country club has quickly fallen out of oak. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The That's boys your, club is Yeah, dead. the boys club and the, your grandpa's law office are, are no longer, you know, they're no longer attracting the right associate and senior associate and junior partner talent. Yep. Just not. Yeah. It's building amenities. It's on-site cafeterias, cafes. Perks. Yep. Keep people in the office, keep them working, keep them billing. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think we're seeing that and we're seeing that as well. I think, you know, with financial services, they're the other group that I would sit there and say on balance, you know, there's a commitment to the level of the office. Now the back office, different story. Front office, yes, we need front office. We need bankers and traders and support staff in the office working together, collaborating, getting deals done. Back office for a long time, that's been migrating out to low cost areas like Salt Lake City or Charlotte or Dallas or what have you. And a lot of the support of a bank is getting going fully remote, right? The call center to reset your password, et cetera. So we expect that trend not to continue. And the other thing with financial services is they need less space because of technology automation. There's just not as much layers in the organization that process paper because technology can do it. Yeah. And you can take that same trend to any industry, right? Mm -hmm. If you're in 10,000 square feet or you were in 10,000 square feet, but you've got a majority of hybrid workers, you can reduce down to four or 5,000 square feet, pay 50% more per square foot for your space, be equal across the board, have a really, really cool experience for the employees, and then still allow for people to go, you know, work at a coffee shop, work at home, do heads down work where they don't necessarily need to come into the office, you know, five days a week. Correct. So Billy, speaking of technology, talk about how that's impacting your world. Labor's been an issue, AI, automation, robots. You have a lot of experience yes. in this sector. What are you, what, what's, what's going on, you know, in, in that market and what have you seen over the last, you know, we'll call it decade of evolution on storage and racking solutions? Uh, that's a, it's a great topic. And I think some of the people that are sitting the prettiest right now with what happened over COVID and the labor constraints are all those automation companies because a big trend is you're going to spend that large capital investment of five, $10 million worth of automation. And then as we all know, product changes, you could be ordering protein powder and all of a sudden they make it in a 10 pound tub instead of a five pound tub. Mm. Well, all that automation was designed for that five pound tub and that $10 million of automation, you need to put another 5 million into it just to retrofit your entire million square foot office or warehouse. So what we're seeing a lot of is large capital investments that you think will give you a three or four year ROI for the next 15, 20 years, but then you're automatically putting more money back into it a lot quicker than you thought, just the way products changing and the industry's changing and labor's changing. So that group as a whole is going to continue to grow. We're seeing those consultants pop up different manufacturers in the robotics world is a huge push right now. They're each taking what they know um, and creating their own companies and their own divisions. So five years ago, there might've been two robotics companies that kind of dominated. Now there's probably 10. And then the technology side too, something to be aware of is groups like Amazon are big enough to buy their own robotics companies. Right. And then they control your software and then they control the pricing. So you have to be very strategic about which group you're partnering with and how much dependence you're going to put into that automation versus having manual labor, which we're all used to and we've all seen. And you know how you can control it. You know how you can adapt it. So technology is greatly impacting industrial. It's just in ways that people aren't really used to seeing. How accessible are things like auto store systems, et cetera, for users today that historically would have been price prohibitive for smaller, medium-sized firms? Has the cost come down? The cost has come down 
The thing that hasn't changed though is the time and investment into getting a system like that and even getting qualified for it. I mean, that's what people don't realize. Unless you're fully bought in to this system, it could take you six months to plan it and then another year to have it manufactured, installed, ready to go. So by that 18 months, what you were already planning for, again, product type could have changed. Your supply chain network could have changed and maybe you don't need it. So really, I think the timing has been one of the biggest prohibiting factors of people diving into automation because they don't know what next year is going to look like or three years is going to look like. And so it sounds like if you know what your SKUs look like, right? If you're just shipping shoes and we won't pick out a shoe brand, but we'll say shoes, shoe boxes are this size. This is what our box looks like. It's probably easier to do a solution for something like that where there's much more control over packaging size type mm-hmm. and like a 3PL that could serve multiple customers and variation or uh, Amazon even where you go into their warehouse, there's everything from a kitty playhouse to a small, you know, screw or what have you, right? No, exactly. So, I mean, really, the from the, the IT and automation standpoint, a lot of the WMS, the warehouse management systems and ERP systems, so enterprise planning systems, that's a lot of the driving factors right now for all these distribution and 3PL companies. You might not be maximizing your storage footprint, but if you can maximize your inventory in and out the door, it doesn't matter what your storage footprint is because you just turned over your inventory twice as quickly as you did a year ago. So we have seen a big push and drive for groups to actually invest in good ERP and WMS systems, which has been exciting. But yeah, it's a very competitive game right now to see which model each of these large groups is going to follow because there's no right answer. We're seeing it with Amazon right now. They clearly overbuilt. Labor wasn't ready. Product's changing too much. So they slow down a little bit. It'll be very interesting to see where they pick up and some of the groups like Walmart who are chasing them, what they're doing as well. That's interesting. All right, Aaron, let's switch to future looking. What do you what do you, what are you looking at for twenty twenty three? What are your tea leaves? Show us your crystal ball. Uh, I think the sublease conversation and discussion is going to continue to kind of be at the forefront for I- any user of any size. You know, we, we've seen I think our sublease you know activity or at least sublease square footage increase by forty or fifty percent from quarter two to quarter three. You know that was largely you know dominated by large users putting fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand square feet on the sublease market. I think we're yet to tell or yet to see what that does to our overall market. You know, Indianapolis historically has not been a market where we see large relocations from other metros coming to Indianapolis to take large blocks of square footage. So I I think in general, a lot of those spaces are just going to continue to sit, you know, maybe some of the folks that do have those subleases just end up maybe reoccupying versus truly doing a sublease. But I I think that's going to drive our market in 2023 as far as rental rates, although it's not a true competitor to a lot of direct leases that tenants are going to you know, go see and, and have interest in, in leasing space at, they're going to have that in the back of their minds in the forefront of their negotiation of, hey, if we can go get essentially brand new space at a, you know, 15 or 20% discount, you know, why wouldn't we seriously consider that? So I think there's a lot of landlords that are going to um, feel pressure, feel pressure to do deals at maybe lesser returns than they would have just to get their building, you know, occupancy stabilized or to a point where they, they're not, they're not facing any sort of debt issues. Yeah. Well, and the other problem in our world has been inflation. You know, tenant improvement construction allowances have gone up because, well, guess what? The costs and the tenants going, I'm not putting money into the space, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think no one's coming. Yeah. <laughs> no one's coming. Why am I going to put my capital at risk? Yeah. I, I for think, something we're all unsure about or we're right. not sure what the future is going to look like, right? Yeah. We're seeing stalling rent growth outside of new construction. We're seeing con- concessions increase. So when you're looking at a net effective deal on the tenant side, it's continuing to go down, which is great. 
on the landlord side, that's that doesn't work too well. No. Yeah. And you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. And there's a term we used to use called point of indifference, you know, and as a tenant rep broker, and that's that's my background, I'm a tenant rep guy. It was always, where's the landlord's point of indifference, right? To, I'm better off not doing this deal. And the goal was to push the deal for your tenant right up to that line. That was that was our strategy the entire time, right? So doing the math and saying, okay, where's the straw that breaks the camel's back? So let's just do one less straw. And that's where we're going we're gonna to strike the deal. And so that'll be a curious conundrum that I think owners are going to go through is trying to figure out where their point of indifference is because of the consequences. I think they're going to have to be much more conservative with it because they may do that. They may get to a point where a new deal that makes sense, but in the back of their mind, they may have 20, 25, 30,000 square feet that could walk out the back door 30 days notice, right? There's a lot of risk on the backside of just scraping by on a deal to take a step forward. And then are you taking two steps back with a tenant that leaves? Yeah. The other thing I'm I'm curious to get your perspective on is, you know, sublease activity is skyrocketed. So we have more sublease space on the market now than we did during the great financial crisis, right? Yep. So economic, you know, near basically near the great depression level, not great re- great recession. Sublease space right now stands greater. At what point do tenants give up on subleasing and this space just sits dark? I I don't know. Um, that goes back that goes back to the large blocks that I think probably do continue to sit unless sublandlords are willing to demise them. But I, I think they're probably feeling pressure internally, especially from the financial side, that this pending recession or recession that we're already in is causing individuals or teams to look around and say, Hey, where can we cut cost? Whether we get this done or not, at least we're showing activity to at least attempt to try to save cost. Yeah. Better than doing nothing. Yeah. All right, Billy. Industrial's invincible, but what are you watching next year? Next year in particular, we're going to see e-commerce has slowed down a little bit. I think Amazon, I mentioned earlier with some of their projections not landing as great as they thought, but we are seeing the demand still extremely high. And I would just tell you, it's in a lot of the things you might not think of. So onshoring right now is a huge trend that we're going to see for the next 10, 20 years, hopefully, because labor is not cheaper overseas anymore like it used to be. So the only reason it typically makes sense to manufacture over there is you have sunk cost and the $2 million worth of manufacturing equipment you put over there three years ago. Mm -hmm. So now as we start to bring some of those groups back, you're going to also see all the complementary components and partners of theirs also setting up shops here in the United States, which is great. I mean, it's exciting. So it might not be your traditional big box e-commerce group, it might be more of a manufacturing with specialty parking and power and consumption, but it's still bringing jobs back, which is awesome. So we'll see that trend continue to grow. Another one that I'm actually tracking and very interested to see what happens with is going to be the reverse logistics business. So everything that's getting returned for like my mother-in-law, she orders two of everything because she wants to try it on, which one she doesn't like, she sends back. So those reverse logistics companies have been crushing it the past few years because the Amazons, the Walmarts, they don't want to bring that return back into their warehouse because it's just a headache. So they're going to pay someone else to do it. When they resell it or find out if they're going to liquidate it, that group handles it. So we've heard groups that are going to start charging for returns. They started to at the end of last year. People didn't take kindly to it. Right. Paige knows that. Returns like give me anxiety. Oh, yes. that's why I go to Zappos or Amazon because I can buy five different things that they don't fit. I drop it off at Kohl's or Whole Foods or just See, drop it in the mail. You you return it. There's a lot of people out there who hate returning. Oh, See, I, I don't mind them. I, I My it. husband hates returning. My wife does it all for me. I, I can't. I hate it. I, which is, it's such an easy thing to do. I want to see, I want to see that money put back, back on my credit card I know. versus more going yeah. out. 
I don't, I'm, I'm with I'm with them. I like, like some it. of them even come with like a pre-shipped label. Oh, yeah, yeah. They make that you just have to possible. like slap it on the box. Yeah. Yeah, but, well, tell me what is different about a reverse logistics process and what they look for versus your standard fulfillment or distribution. So in, in reverse logistics, a lot of the contracts you're going to chase, depending on the group you are, you're going to go after the Walmarts of the world and you're going to tell them we're going to have this size footprint dedicated to you. We're going to charge you per piece that comes in. We're going to charge you for every touch in and out and a storage fee monthly, but you don't really know the size of it. So they're Buildings are going to be designed to maybe take 20 different products and instead of putting them all in one 10 by 10 inch shelf location, they might throw it all in a big cardboard box that's four foot by four foot by four foot. And then from that- So like a Gaylord almost. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I just didn't want to confuse people. Sorry. Yeah. But then they have to decide, okay, you have- $300 $300 worth of product in this Gaylord. Is it efficient? Depending on what we hear from Walmart, do we get to resell it on this site or do we just send it to a liquidator and then they pay us $100 for the pallet? Right. And they can choose to sell it for whatever they want. So the reverse logistics buildings, they just look a lot different than you would see on a traditional fulfillment where it's all being scanned throughout the entire two miles worth of conveyor and then going out the door. This is more gets scanned on the inbound and then each group is going to choose to put it away, whatever is most strategic for the type of product and the type of contract they have. Again, Walmart might look different than like a GNC who might be heavier product and, and all powders and proteins and food grade. So That's interesting. So tell me about Final Mile though. I mean, there was a lot made of Final Mile a few years ago. Obviously, this is more into urban real estate. Can we explain Final Mile for those listening? All right, Bill, you explain Final Mile because I'll screw it up. I mean, Final Mile is exactly what you're hearing. You're trying to get a location set up as close to the suburban areas as possible with the intention of someone who might be ordering a one tube of toothpaste and a pair of shoes that they can get both of them on the same order so it's efficient, less transportation cost. But setting up these hubs, it's not as cheap to find that real estate because if you're just looking at square footages, industrial square footage pricing is maybe a third of what retail square footage pricing is. So it sounded great when COVID hit and all these retail shops went out of business. Oh, we'll convert this to industrial. Well, none of those guys want to take a third of the cost for that building, plus the millions of dollars you also have to put into it to retrofit, because most mm-hmm. of those have a single dock door. In reverse logistics, we're going to want them to have 50 dock doors plus, so it's just boom, 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 in and out. So last mile is still a trend, but everyone has admitted, they haven't accepted defeat, but they've admitted it's not gone as quickly as they thought, and they really don't know exactly how it's going to shape out. But while transportation costs are still so high, they're going to keep digging in on it. Yeah. Well, I, I saw a comp in our office market meeting that you were behind that was an office building for most of its life or a period of its life. And it is now being converted, right? Yep. It's a, it's, it's an infill location. Yep. Right? It's an infill location and they're, they're converting the back half to office and the front half to more of a retail customer pickup area for truck components and parts and pieces. And for them, it's easier to be right off the highway, come in, grab it, and go instead of being 20 minutes off the highway with a bunch of land like they're used to having so they can park all the trailers. So on a smaller scale, it's doable. It's very strategic, but it's definitely case-by-case basis. Well, it's expensive. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amount of money they're pouring into this is nothing that you would see on the scale for industrial. Are are they going to get close to a basis what they could have just built it for? I bet you that is probably the case. But from a... From a cost savings on transportation, though, I mean, and just the visibility on being off a major road yeah. from their client base, 
being able to see them as soon as they get off. Well, they they couldn't truly replicate what they're doing on a greenfield site. No, not not in any of the big suburban or in the big uh, industrial parks. Yeah, and in in a way, it's kind of it's very much similar to what some retailers have been doing, like Amazon with the pickup lockers and other kind of you know get your customers to do the final mile for you, right? I mean that's that's part of our pickup in store. I mean, we saw today when we went to lunch. Yeah, there's oh, yeah. lockers for food. Every, every everyone's new, doing yeah, it. Every new restaurant's doing it, and it's and there's a bigger line for people going to pick up their salad on the than order in the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. That's funny. But you have to tip. Do you? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no. But that's, we were talking about that this morning. That everyone now has a tip button. Everyone's tipping. Everyone's tipping. I'm going to ask for tips when they pay my commission. <laughs> I'm going to have a tip jar at my desk. <laughs> so, so Billy, you know, you mentioned some of these macro trends. It still seems like there's good fundamentals in that market, right? Where are the challenges though with interest rates, inflation, you know, and, and kind of, you know, the spec development pipeline, right? Vacancy continues to be an issue. What has been developers' response on increases in interest rates? Are we going to see supply start going away that was in the works? I, I can speak the most for here in Indy. So we have, I think last year we hit a record with 20 million under construction. And I think this year we're at 30 million under construction. The majority of that was already planned and started before the interest rates started to rise. So I have heard a lot of developers pulling back on future plan development. Um, that hasn't thrown up any red flags for me being primarily a tenant rep broker because we still have 30 million of inventory that's delivering mm-hmm. in the next year, year and a half. So that's a big sandbox for us to play in still. And I think it'll absorb most of that demand we're going to see. The one cause for concern I have is a lot of these developers are holding these construction loans at variable interest rates. So that's something that our capital markets team has been tracking. And so for these developers, they're going to have to be charging even higher rents than they thought because their construction costs are higher. So we're going to see rates continue to climb, especially while demand is high. So it's it's a tough conversation for us to all have with our clients. No one wants to pay more. Especially yeah, because they re- they're watching the news and they go, yeah, recession's coming and Facebook's laying off whatever 10,000 people and Amazon's laying off as many people as they can. And they go, shouldn't our rent go down? Shouldn't we, we've talked with clients about this where their CEO asked that question and we go, no, the vacancy is still the vacancy and demand is still the demand. And until that equation changes. Exactly. No, it's spot on. So we're, we're doing our best to set those expectations and get out ahead of those conversations with clients. So then you have what little leverage and negotiating power you do. But our biggest cause for concern right now is just nobody has budgeted for these rental rate increases to continue to go through the roof to levels no one ever thought possible. So it sounds like industrial will continue to, the rates will still go up? That's what we think. Hmm. All right, Aaron, we have different outlooks here, right? This is day and night. Let me ask a question. We've seen historically in the last two years, suburban leasing far outpacing CBD leasing. Why do you think that is, and what's the future for downtown real estate without office workers? I think the primary driver for that is convenience and functionality, right? Majority, if you look at our Indianapolis Metro MSA, majority of our population is on northern suburbs, just the outskirts of the CBD. Um, So I think that trend continues to evolve as 
you know, outside of newer construction projects are easier to do and are more feasible outside of the CBD, just based on land cost and, and land availability. So I, I think that trend continues. You know, with that, we're still seeing really, really cool projects be downtown and draw people and employers and employees to downtown. I and mean, you look at what Bottle Works is doing. It's a perfect example of an urban environment that's attracting large tenants and large users. And it's that it goes back to the the flight to functionality and and you know, quality product where, you know, you get more efficient on your floor plates. You don't have to take as much square footage, but you've got activities and amenities for employees to be around, gather as groups, whether it's during or outside of the work hours. You know, we're, we're starting to see, especially in Indianapolis, a couple of really, really cool pockets. What, you know, Bottle Works on the Northeast side of Mass Ave, Stutz on the Northwest side of downtown, close to IU. I think there's a lot of really cool pockets that are drawing people to downtown and, and convincing them that yes, downtown is still where it was two or three years ago. You know, I, I think in general, you know, we're, we're always going to go through cycles, whether it's suburban or downtown. Mm-hmm. I think unfortunately right now we're in a cycle where downtown's not as attractive or not as hot to compared to suburbs based on just employee convenience. And the last 12, 18, 24 months, employees have been able to make that decision of, Hey, I either want to stay home or I'm going to work somewhere that I can be at in five minutes versus, you know, 25 or 30 minutes. Right. And they don't have to pay a thousand dollars for parking downtown. No. Well, that doesn't help matters. And that's a whole nother can of worms that (laughs) we could go into in detail about striking new parking agreements. But the other kind of piece of that too, is I think there's kind of two office users right now. There's, there's, there's the one that says, Hey, we're going to go into a project like Stutz or Bottle Works. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be really activated. Paige and I were just over at Stutz, what was it, two days ago? Mm-hmm. And there was like a Christmas market. Yeah. And I mean, it was really, I mean, Samara Road, I mean, everything that they had talked up, it seemed like it all was starting to happen. Right. And it kind of surprised us. Now there's still more work to do. It's a big complex, right? But Or we go over to Bottle Works quite often and it's like a city unto itself. And so there's the user that goes, hey, I'm going to make this bet. We're going to make a place that people want to come to because it's cool and new. And I think in a lot of ways, subtly, right? No one said this explicitly, but I think it gives senior leaders that desire to have their people collaborating good ammunition to say, Hey guys, we're making a big bet here and and I expect you guys to be in here and it's going to be really cool. And this will deliver the space. The other trend is the convenience trend to say, Hey, I don't want to spend more on space, but I know to get people to use it, it's got to be convenient. Yep. It's got to be convenient and people aren't going to commute 45 minutes if they don't have to. So on that note, you're in review. What was each of your favorite project you worked on this year? Billy, you go first. You can say joining this team. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you need to think about it. Yeah. Make Aaron go first. I'll go. I'll I'll go. go. And this is really three projects in one. Yeah. And, and it was two or three years in the works. <laughs> right. And that's how 10 to big projects go. Uh, but we, we did a really, really in-depth portfolio overview for a nonprofit healthcare system that had 120,000 square feet of, of owned buildings downtown, both class B dated deferred maintenance buildings that they were really only occupying maybe 60 to 70,000 square feet of those. They were, they were playing landlord. I don't think they enjoyed being a landlord. So we took that as an opportunity. Both buildings were, were sold earlier this year. Yeah, one is going to be repurposed for office slash multifamily. I think those plans are still to be determined. The others are really, really cool value add land play site that a, a high net worth individual that's really the first project in Indianapolis that they purchased, probably going to make some announcements in the next call it six to 12 months there. 
So we, we really un, un, you know, unleashed a lot of capital for this organization that needed it. And then we, we right-sized them into a, a 40,000 square foot build-a-suit, essentially ground up, but really a corn shell project that's being totally gutted. And it, it, it's really, you know, we've talked about this, it feels really good to have a, a project that makes you feel good at the end of the day, right? That's more than just the monetary value that Winlock for the for the organization. It's them being able to better serve their clients from what we talked about over the last 24 months. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great project. It's, it's one of my favorites in my career, actually. And it's going to transform, you know, that neighborhood that they're going into, putting a clinic for both mental and physical health services, as well as their headquarters in a neighborhood that's developing affordable housing, that's on public transit line, and it's going to really unlock additional health services for some of the people in the city that need it the most. That's awesome. And then we save them a bunch of money in the process, yeah. right? So that's, that's great, too. All right, Billy. So I saw you flipping through your notebook. I, know. <laughs> I, I admit it. I'll flip through. Just want to pick which customer is not going to get mad at me. When I, you don't have to say their say name it. if you don't want to. Uh, I think my favorite one was that infill one you referenced earlier because it started out with this project. We had three different requirements. One was for about 20,000 square feet of overflow warehouse, about 10,000 square feet of office, and about 5,000 square feet of retail. Um, and as Andrew alluded to, I'm, I'm an industrial guy. I don't, I don't dabble in retail. I don't touch office much. So we actually had gone down the path of mostly industrial with a little bit of office and we were going to find a separate retail spot for them again, right off the highway, somewhere close to their trucks. And we even got to lease on a bigger industrial building that we were going to have to spend some money on, but it was going to be rough for retail or again, we'd put it somewhere else. And then we finally found the right spot and then had to really quickly negotiate through the process, get all the contractor estimates. I mean, it was just a fun team to work with and I got to learn a lot through the process and especially from the contractors of what you can do with uh, primarily office building, how you can make it work for everybody. Well, yeah. They, and, and not to discount it. That was a really cool office building. Oh, I mean, for, yeah, it, it was, was class A finishes in a, you know, primarily industrial park, but it was a really cool building that, you know, I bet when they took that listing agreement, they probably didn't anticipate a group like you guys coming in and buying it. Yeah. Well, get used to it. It sounds like based on our conversation today, Bill, you might be doing more of that. <sighs> <I'm> like, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, boys. So to, we have a couple questions we ask everybody, but we're putting a holiday spin here. You know, Paige knows I'm very merry when it comes to the, the oh, holiday. Yeah. Um, Saint Nick over here, yeah, just jolly. You know, the beard's <laughs> already going gray, and uh, my my cheerful demeanor, as mm-hmm. everyone knows, is is just overflowing in this time of year. Um, <laughs> but you know, aside from that, you know, we have a few questions. So I want everyone to say their favorite Christmas movie. We talked about it earlier. Four Christmases. Uh, four Christmases. Really? It's incredible. It is good. It, it's incredible is a strong word. It, I'm not a huge fan, and I give my sister um, <laughs> a ton of crap for it because she loves claymation. She loves like the original uh, Rudolph. Yes, oh, I'm like, I cannot stand watching that. So Four Christmases is I'll watch it probably five times between now and Christmas. Wow. I like all the Christmas classics. Don't get me wrong, but if we're going modern, I would tell you. For kids, the new Grinch crushes it. And then for adults... The new one? The new one. Like the one with Jim Carrey? Nope. There's There's a new one? new, new. Your kids are going to like it. Just trust me. It's slightly different plot line, but still... Does he still steal Christmas? Uh, Yeah, he brings back two. It's it's, kind of a dark movie. I know. I'm like, my kids don't... My oldest is only two. I don't know if they're going to like it yet. This new one, it gets the job done. And then, But for adults, uh, the one we've actually watched the past few years is Bad Mom's Christmas. That's a good one. Pretty damn fun. Bad Mom's Christmas. Yeah, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it. Over Bad Santa? Yeah. (laughs) Bad Santa (laughs) is like the one movie I cannot get behind. I think it's good. 
Yeah. I mean, it's definitely good for a one watch. Maybe haven't seen it in 10 years, watch it again. Yeah. But Bad Mom's Christmas, you can watch every year and you're going to piss your pants. I got it. My favorite is Christmas Vacation. National Lampoon's. Yeah. Always will be. That's, I mean, it's got to be. My dad is Chevy three. Chase, though. So, I mean, <laughs> Billy knows. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Griswolds. I think a lot of dads from that generation are. My dad just loves Christmas. My mom, not as much, I think. Yeah. What's, your, what's yours? Yeah. All right. So, here's my top. Three and they're kind of different. No, you gotta have one. You yeah. can't do three. I did two, so I give him a break on that one. Okay, all right. Let me think about this real quick. Okay, so number you can't have three and take this long. Yeah, you have to be able to go like, boom, boom, boom. On. He's asking the questions and doesn't have the answers. I, I do have the answers. I'm really torn. Here. You're being okay. very strategic. It's just a so, movie. So the first one I, I like, and it's kind of one that kind of gets glossed over a lot, is is Scrooged with Bill Murray. The orid, like old school yes. from eighty five. I don't know if I've ever seen it. I'm you, not, I'm when not were you born? Ninety one. Yeah. yeah, I'm not a huge <laughs> yeah, Bill Murray fan. It's uh, it's it's pretty good. It's worth a watch. Number two, Christmas Vacation. I watch that every Christmas. So do I. That's. I mean, it's just so funny. You I know. know what I'm going to get you for Christmas. I just come. <laughs> pair of white loafers. No. <laughs> Clark, you <laughs> like mine so much. I'll get you a pair. <laughs> that scene. And then the last one is Elf. Oh, that's Elf a good one. A good with, one. With Will Ferrell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's hilarious. Did you see how much he turned down to do a sequel? The second one? Yeah. Are you going to uh, Google it yeah. right now? And that was Zoe Deschanel's like, outbreak role. Well, I don't know who's uh, uh, he turned is. down. 20 she now dates a property brother. <laughs> not what do you think famous. he turned down to do it? You just started uh, to say it. 20 yeah. something, 20 mil, $29 million. 29 million said, no, keep it pure. <laughs> keep it. I pure. mean, he knows the sequels are always they're all not terrible. as great, but we just said home alone two is better than home alone one. Yeah. But home alone three is trash. Duh. Okay. I don't even know if I've ever seen it. It's a different cast. I know. Yeah. Well, that's why it's trash. Okay, everyone's favorite Christmas song. Mariah Carey, All Day Long. All I want for Christmas. She we already know heart. that. I know. We already know. She melts my heart. I'm a soul guy, so I'm going uh, Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, Jackson 5 <laughs> version. <laughs> my kids think it's hilarious. <laughs> that is funny. All right, Aaron. Oh, I got to look it up. Oh, Maybe grandma got ran over by a reindeer. Oh, no, you're Justin Timberlake. Don't lie. I do. Yeah. I actually did listen Justin to Justin Bieber. He loves so, Justin Bieber's Christmas album. Uh, our daughter only freaks out from six to seven o'clock at night. And the only thing she calms down with is music. So mm-hmm. we've been listening to a lot of NSYNC Christmas. Mm. NSYNC Christmas. Okay. All right. I'll take that. I'll go with it. Yeah. NSYNC Christmas. All right. So, so the <laughs> whole Mariah Carey thing, everyone knows I have a deep um, love of Mariah Carey. <laughs> and Christy Alley. <sighs> R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, she just passed away. She just passed away. But Mariah Carey for me, I, it wasn't so much her music as it was her gor- okay. gorgeous beauty. But anyways. Mm-hmm. Keep it PG. <laughs> I, I did. That was very PG. I'd say that in front of my my grandma, rest in peace. Um, <laughs> they're all long dead. But I, I, I struggle because I do like some of like the Rat Pack classics, like Frank Sinatra Christmas or Bing Crosby. Put it on the vinyl. Kind of just takes you to a different time. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a, all I want for Christmas is you. Although it it's does, just, it's a great song. Her, her, her voice is like an angel. Does Kenny G count? I mean, oh, he's yeah. not singing, but he's yeah. Yeah. Kenny that's G Christmas. Too. I like Put that. you in the mood. Yeah. Michael Buble Christmas. Buble. Yeah. Buble is good too. Does it for the girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Him and Justin. Keep it PG. All right. So talk to me. 
Last question before we got to wrap. What is the one Christmas gift you guys are getting yourselves? Aaron first. Oh, nope. I got to pass this to Billy first. (laughs) Uh, I'm really bad at buying stuff for myself. The women in my life pretty much buy all my clothes (laughs) and pretty much everything I need. Billy would wear a paper bag if it wasn't for his wife. Oh, for sure. (laughs) So I would say my wife is selling something of mine, which I plan to use that proceeds to buy myself new golf clubs in the spring. So count that as my Christmas. There you go. Because she's trying to sell it online to make money for someone else who's going to buy it for Christmas. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Aaron? Uh, I either want a really nice espresso machine or a pebble ice maker. Oh. It's very specific. I like that. Scott really wants an espresso machine too. Yeah. But... We actually just had the conversation of this is probably the last year we can get away with not getting each other Christmas presents because mm. our kids don't really know yet. Right. Which is so scroogey, but whatever. So, so what are you getting yourself? I mean, I don't think anything. I also have a December birthday. So oh, that's true. Like, yeah. Oh, that's tough. I know. When's your birthday? December 2nd. Thanks for wishing me a happy oh. birthday. Oh, I did wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know. I um I've I've bought myself a lot. I said you better have some good <laughs> yeah, <trick> question. Like- <laughs> I uh, it was time to upgrade some dress shirts in my collection. If anyone knows me, I I wear dress shirts every day religiously. I can't I can't wear a polo or this or that. I got to wear a collared shirt with mm-hmm. button sleeves. So I I spent an <laughs> embarrassing amount of money on five new custom dress shirts and a few from Turnbull and Asser as a gift to myself when I was buying my wife for Christmas gifts. So. What'd you get your wife? Is yeah, this going to come out after Christmas? Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, I got her, she collects Hermes scarves. So every year we go to one of three independent authorized by Hermes shops. One is in the Cleveland area where I grew up, not far in Chagrin Falls, in a place called Cuffs. So shout out to Cuffs in Chagrin Falls. And they have an amazing Hermes selection. They're not an Hermes store, but they're one of three in North America that are authorized by Hermes to sell their products. And every Christmas we pick out a new scarf for her collection. Can we get a sponsorship? Promo code. I, I, yeah. I knew yeah. Billy did not know who Hermes was. So I'm no. like, he, can we get a sponsorship from this group? No chance. No Promo chance. <laughs> Promo code urban boundary. Zero, yeah. Yeah. Zero chance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, although I think your wife might be really pleased if you came home with a Birkin bag and be like, what's this bag I got at work? You know, and she'd be like over the moon. Yeah, if she doesn't, you can send it my way. <laughs> I'll trust you. The opening retail is like, it's high. If you can get one. Yeah, it's high. That's the thing. You got to build a relationship. Oh yeah, I don't have time for that. Yeah, it's not. They it's don't, an investment. You piece. can't just walk in and be like, hey, my wife wants a Birkin bag and walk out of the store with it. We can probably on Canal Street. Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a firkin, right? <laughs> it's a firkin bag. So you got to pay either secondary market, or you have to have bought enough stuff. Essentially, you know, you probably got to spend as much as you're going to spend on the purse to get one. They could send me out the door with a re- the purse that that person owns, and I would have no idea what a birkin bag even looks like. I'll show you later. <laughs> Not that I have one, I'll pull up a picture. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Was it fun? I had a blast. Yeah. We'll do do this more often. All right. Well, happy holidays to all of our listeners from Paige and myself. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. If you don't celebrate any of them. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. That encompasses all of them. Anyone else we need to cover in this? Uh, Honda days. Happy Honda Hanukkah. days. Yeah. The Lexus, <laughs> gift, days. Lexus <laughs> days of giving are coming up too. So you you know, support your car dealers and thank you for listening and, and we'll, we'll be back soon. 
Thank you to our executive producer and audio wizard, Chris Spangle at leadersandlegends.net. Also, thank you to my co-host and producer, Paige O'Neill. And finally, thank you to Colliers International for providing us space to use as our recording studio in downtown Indianapolis. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to like or follow us on LinkedIn and YouTube at Urban Foundry Podcast.